It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 8 in our series for 2022, and today's date is Friday, March the 25th. First, I'll be talking to Brendan Doggett, Country Manager for Sharesies AU, on how investors are now responding to market our people. And I'll be talking to Indeed Economist Callum Pickering about the latest jobs figures. But now, let's talk to Brendan Doggett. Now, Brendan, tell us about the markets at the moment. People have to get used to war going on with Russia and the Ukraine? I mean, how has that affected the market and investors? Yeah, the market's definitely had an interesting run over the last little while. Um, first pandemics and now kind of threat of war, I think. But the one thing is the markets are resilient, but the markets don't like uncertainty. So anything to do with kind of geopolitical stuff puts a bit of a scare in the markets, also impacts consumer sentiment, which, you know, people just don't want to get trading. Um, the prices are going all over the place, but it's impacting commodities, oil, tech companies, you know, airlines and all that sort of stuff. So it really is like an amazing combination of kind of external forces playing out for us right now. Yes, indeed. And uh, I mean, the question is, are there any safe havens? Yeah, good question. I would say there aren't really any safe havens apart from um, good old fashioned investing in an ETF, which tracks an index over time. That's been seen as quite quite a good way to grow your wealth fairly conservatively. I think the ASX 200 over 10 years has kind of returned about 9%, including dividends. So you park your cash in there and that's a nice little safety thing. I think there's lots of uncertainty. We've had a bit of a bounce in the market today, but you know, what is a what is a safe haven? It's kind of there are some speculative stocks that you can kind of look at, but for my money, it's like parking in an ETF and kind of let the market do its magic. That's, that's quite extraordinary. And so, you know, it's very unsafe for investors. They're both very think, insecure, very insecure. Yeah, yeah. I'd say like, well, I think the markets over time have gone up and down continuously. I think if you kind of look back to the world wars, there's been 50 odd kind of market corrections, which go up and down. If you buy continuously over that time, then it's all good. But uncertainty in markets does create price opportunities as well, you could say. So there are some bargains out there. Yeah, some bargains out there, definitely. I always say track the index for for a good portion of of your investment dollars. But then also think about what companies um, and industries that 
that you believe in, that you believe in the products and you think there is a future for their products. So um, commodity lithium is doing pretty well at the moment. So some lithium miners, we've got lots of kind of metal producers in Australia, which have got good, you know, once the supply, and sh supply chain issues are solved, there's lots of customers around the world who, who still need our metal out of the ground. So there's lots of future opportunity in those spaces. Well, I mean, you'd say that with all the issues with oil at the moment, you'd say companies like Santos and Woodside would be doing quite well too. Yeah, and, and we see, you know, our, um, our, our uh, investor base kind of getting into those sorts of things. Look, you know, reading about getting interested in, in what's going around the world and thinking, well, what things do people need? And Russia is a big producer of oil and gas, um, including kind of wheat and other, other food commodities. So people need to eat, people need to put fuel in vehicles. Um, there's always going to be demand for that. So, I mean, but what's interesting, though, is, I mean, we've had, I mean, last year we had all this stuff, well, since 2020, we've had all this stuff to, with COVID affecting markets. Now we've got, we seem to be getting used to COVID or dealing with it. And now we've got with geopolitical stuff happening. And <laughs> so this is, this is just mind boggling for investors. Yeah, it absolutely is. And particularly, you know, Sharesies is all about making people feel more confident in investing and giving them information. So when people get into the market for the first time and all of a sudden, you know, COVID's happened, you know, geopolitical issues, inflation, interest rates, all these really complicated things coming together, people get worried. Um, money's a very personal thing. People don't want to make mistakes. People want to usually get good returns, but the markets do go up and down. So we see platforms like Sharesies have a very important role to kind of talk to people about that. The market has a cycle there are ups and downs the idea about buying regularly over time and dollar cost averaging is just that you get the peaks and you get the dips and over time that that evens out but we're really focused on kind of that education content and communicating with investors a lot saying you know remember why you invested for the um, in the first place that you're looking at a 10 plus year um, horizon things go up and down just fear is part of the market but just learn kind of learn from that and you don't you don't lose money until you sell. So that's an important you know thing that people need to remember when they're staring at that negative two percent, three percent, four percent, and thinking about it. It's like, well, if you need the money, you can sell, but that's that's the only time you actually make a loss when you sell. Well, the interesting thing is, how do shares actually deal with this with the with the investors? How do you talk to them? I mean, what what communications do you, channels do you use? Yeah, like in the past, I think a traditional kind of stockbroking relationship was a little bit less um, communicative, but now we're set up very digitally and obviously we have everyone's mobile numbers and emails so we can communicate them regularly. Uh, we do three times a week newsletters um, as well as uh, Instagram and Facebook are very, very easy way to reach our customer base. And so you can put up snippets of information in there and kind of helpful hints, give people a little bit of reassurance and then can point them in the direction of other educational and, and knowledge um, information. Okay, so it's, it's basically your communication is digital mostly. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so I mean, so how, how are investors reacting to all that volatility? Yeah, so um, we definitely have been looking at the data and it's still 90, over 90% 90 of our, our trades are buys. So we've got very little people selling activity, which is great. And, and people we have surveyed recently are overwhelmingly in it for the long term with an investment horizon of over 10 years. 
So we've seen almost no panic buying. Some of our comments into our investor care team and into our social media, just about people reassuring each other, not people panicking and thinking, you know, this is a this is a horrible situation. Remembering back when COVID kind of first hit two years ago, there was a very big dip straight away. So this choppiness of the market, people are also becoming accustomed to it. And over time, as we know, the markets do it do it quite often. So people have got used to that as well. Yeah, I think used to it, and actually people understand that the market go up and down but it's not always one way and volatility is um, lots of people brought and, and when the market was on sale basically during COVID so they realised that ups and downs occur and and sometimes the downtimes are actually the opportunity you know the markets are the only place when it's on sale people start getting um, running away from it whereas you know if the local supermarkets on sale people will go so that psychology is actually changing, I think, as kind of we democratise investing. So, so who's your base? Yeah, yeah so, so we, um, you know, we're a dig- digital first app, which is uh, no jargon and, and easy to enter. So we skew um, younger. So uh, the majority of our customer base would kind of be between 25 and 45, but we have people from 18 to 90 using the platform you know it's quite easy to use and, and people just feel comfortable with that and, and like the education content but that big base is kind of the 25 to 45 year olds and we're at the moment about 58 percent female and the rest male. that's interesting 58 percent female yeah how do you explain that i think it's all about like that, how we started off shares which was like breaking down barriers and confidence to become an investor. So when we first started off in New Zealand, I think the typical profile of an investor was, you know, a, an older person living in a capital city who'd been in the finance industry for a while and already had a decent amount of income. So everything we've done has been to break down those barriers. So I think that really speaks to people who've just never invested before. And women have um, definitely been left out, left out of the financial environment for quite a while, particularly investing, which was, you know, sometimes seen as a bit of a, a bro culture environment. That's very interesting. So, so that was very much a quite a select group of investors. Yeah, but back in the day, it was like high high cost to entry. You know, um, big uh, no minimum trade sizes over five hundred dollars. Um, you, you needed to sign off on your risk profile that you'd invested before, you knew what you're doing, and then kind of put in big amounts of, of, of funds based on where do you get your research from. That was also kind of a closed shop. The $64 question is, uh, do female investors react differently than male investors? I think we, so that, yeah, that is an interesting question. And from our data, it's pretty much like just a way of thinking about investing. So people who haven't done it before are really involved in doing the research, making sure they're diversified and, and interested in that. I think the long-term investing profile, you know, probably the same over both genders. I think there's a particular other types of access to to trading some of the apps are more kind of wolf of wall street or trading kind of behavior and they might approach a different type of investing so your day trading or something like that whereas our platform is really that about long-term wealth um, development so that that kind of attracts people who are in it for the long term investing regularly um, interested in the diversification and kind of research so i think that kind of attracts the customer base rather than by agenda so you're not really catering for day traders well, so I think day day trading is, you know, you need to access funds quickly and kind of buy the buy the dip and the, and the peak. The platform, you can do it through that, but I think it's just a way of 
of talking about wealth, which is kind of longer term. I mean, that's that kind of is where our platform resonates. So, so what are the long term trends you see? The long term trends actually um, feel quite stable. So, we kind of have been watching the companies that our investors have been have been buying over the last you know, two year to three months, and it hasn't really changed very much. It's all the usual, particularly in Australia, all the usual blue chips that people get into: some tech, um, Tesla, some airlines. You know, buy now, pay later, that sort of stuff, as well as ETFs for. Uh, particularly US exposure and, and the index in Australia. And that really hasn't changed over time. You know, the, the supermarkets are still in there, your value-based companies and a bit of tech splattering in there. So although you'd think people might react a bit of a knee-jerk to what's going on in the markets and change from tech to, you know, banks and back and forth, people are actually investing in the same sorts of companies over time. So it feels boring, but it also is great that people are committed to why they invested and they see value in companies and they're the following names that they they know and they can easily kind of research. Okay, well, that'll be fascinating to watch. And uh, look, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for yours. And now let's talk to Indeed Economist Callum Pickering. Callum, the latest unemployment figures are very good. They're down to 4%. We haven't been there since February 2008. Incredible sort of labour market figures. Like I said, we haven't seen an unemployment rate of 4% in 14 years. The labour market has strengthened considerably. Over the past 12 months, it's rebounded really quickly from the Delta-related restrictions that we had late last year. This was a labour market uh, report that had very few weak points at all. We're seeing very strong employment growth. We're seeing very strong full-time employment growth, and that's translating into uh, the tightest labour market that Australia has seen since at least 2008. And I think it is very likely that we will see an unemployment rate beginning with a, a three, potentially as soon as next month. So this is a very exciting uh, labour market right now. What's driving that? Well, it, it's mostly been driven by the the tens of billions of dollars injected into the economy throughout the, the pandemic, you know, through policies such as JobKeeper. Now, those policies kept the economy afloat during those lockdown periods, but a lot of that money is still uh, flowing throughout the economy. And what that has done has it is it has created incredible demand for goods and services, and that's underpinned the strong employment growth that has driven the unemployment rate down to this 14-year low. Okay, so, I mean, was it mostly, was it was there a lot of full-time work being created? Yeah, absolutely. In, uh, in February, full-time employment increased by around 120,000, which is an outstanding result. Full-time employment has accounted for a little over 90% of all jobs created over the past 12 months and we're, we're talking about employment growth about almost 400,000 over the past 12 months so that's a, that's an outstanding result and what that basically means is that the economy is not just creating jobs it's not just creating part-time or casual or freelance types jobs it's creating full-time high-paying opportunities that is meeting the needs of, of workers and a consequence of that is that the rate of underemployment in Australia is also now at a 14-year low of six. 0.6% compared with a high 8% range that we were at before the pandemic began. So more people are finding work and more people are finding the hours that they want. I noticed the female unemployment has dropped to 3.8%. It's driving that? Well, when we see a bit of a, a variance in, in male and, and female unemployment, and, and right now the uh, women's unemployment rate's at 3.8%, for men it's at 4.2%. Usually what is driving that is that jobs growth is being concentrated in industry 
industries where women tend to be more concentrated. So we're talking about things such as retail, hospitality, uh, healthcare, social assistance. We're probably seeing very strong employment growth in, in those areas, and that's driving uh, women's employment. The, the end result of that, as you said, 3.8% unemployment rate is actually lower since 1974, so a 48-year low, which is an incredible result. That's that's quite extraordinary. And, and of course, uh, the issue, though, too, is whether any of this is going to translate into higher wages. I mean, the, at the moment, it's running at about 2.3%. And uh, will this tighter labour market translate into higher wages? Well, the expectation is that these tighter labour market conditions will begin to uh, drive greater wage competition across businesses, and that should help to, to push wage growth up. The last time we had an unemployment rate of 4%, wage growth was actually 4% itself, which is in stark contrast to the 2.3% the rate we're, we're currently at. Um, so there's still a long way to go on, on the wage front, but we, we would anticipate that the incredible tightness in the labour market, the very strong demand for workers, you know, the record job creation that we're seeing, the record number of vacancies, should should translate into greater wage pressures over the, the course of this year and next. Well, the interesting thing is I notice the unions are now talking about having wages campaigns at 5 and 6% which would suggest the wages will indeed go up beyond 3%. That'd be right. Yeah, unions are a key part of the, the equation. So much of wage growth is driven by the minimum wage, various award payments, all of which unions play a, a big role in determining. The fact that unions are pushing for higher wages makes a great deal of sense given the heightened inflation environment and given the, the tightness in the labour market. They're seeing an opportunity to get better wages for the people that they, they serve. And this is an opportunity that they, they really haven't had over the past 14 or 15 years. Um, so they're trying to strike while they're in a, in a very favourable uh, bargaining position. So we could expect wages to go well higher, but well higher than 3%. Would that be right? Well, potentially. I mean, it does depend on whether the unions are successful in, in what they're pushing for. There's always a bit of bargaining, a bit of negotiation that, that takes place, and they don't always get what they, they want. But the fact that they are asking for much higher wage gains now compared with before the pandemic does indicate that we're likely to see much stronger wage growth over the next two years than we've perhaps become accustomed to. And that's it's going to be necessary because we are in this higher inflation environment. So if wage growth doesn't pick up, then the reality is that the household budgets aren't quite, aren't quite going to go as far as they uh, have in, in the past. If you're getting 2.3% wage growth and inflation's pushing 4 or maybe 5%, then you're, you're effectively going backwards. And so it'll be interesting to see how these uh, negotiations with the unions, how that how that uh, results and what sort of wage gains we do begin to see for workers. Well, that, that's good going to be interesting because the RBA's minutes say that they're expecting inflation to go way higher than uh, the underlying rate, and so uh, some economists are talking about inflation as high as 5%. Well, that's certainly what we've seen overseas. The Australian inflation experience so far hasn't matched what we've seen in countries such as the United States. But over in the United States, they're pushing about 7% inflation. There, there's an awfully good chance that inflation in Australia will continue to rise, will continue to import high inflation from abroad. We've seen what's happened with global supply chains and key commodity prices, such as petrol, all of which point to a higher inflation over the, the coming months. It'll be interesting to see just how that plays out, uh, whether that is sufficient for the Reserve Bank to, to raise, raise rates sooner uh, rather than later. Well, uh, so when are you expecting the Reserve Bank to raise rates? I mean, the Reserve Bank is now coming under a lot of pressure. Uh, the Fed just raised its rates. So. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Where do you expect the Reserve Bank to be? I mean, do you see rates being raised in August? Well, it's an interesting one. I mean, if you just look at the the labour market figures, um, you would swear that they should be raising immediately. But it is still a very uncertain economic environment given the the pandemic and some of the geopolitical risks around the Ukraine-Russian war. So the fact that the Reserve Bank is playing a little bit cautious does make a a certain degree of of sense. But there is increased pressure on the Reserve Bank. And if they do see that further pickup in inflation, I I think there, there will be more calls for the Reserve Bank to to hike rates. What we don't really know at the moment, though, is what is the Reserve Bank's threshold for inflation? What level of inflation are they willing to tolerate? Because we know that they don't want to hike rates. They want wage growth to pick up before they hike rates. But the reality is that if we do see inflation beginning with a 4 or a 5%, then it will be very difficult for them to, to hold steady and, and push back against that, given the sort of growing pressure that they would be facing. Now, we don't know what their threshold is. We don't know what they're willing to tolerate, but I, I think we're probably going to find out what that is um, over the next three to six months. I'm penciling in an August rate hike, but I I think if inflation comes in really hot in in April when we get the March quarter results, then I certainly wouldn't be surprised if maybe they pull the trigger in May or June. And and, and indeed, uh, uh, depending on what happens with the war in the Ukraine, petrol prices keep increasing, we could, and inflation keeps rising, we could see other rate hikes into next year as well. Well, that's certainly a possibility. No one knows how this is going to to play out, but it's going to have a big impact on what monetary policy looks like. If the supply chain disruptions and these geopolitical risks sort of subside sooner rather than later, then it's likely that inflation is just going to spike high and then return to to normal levels pretty quickly. And if that was the case, then it wouldn't make sense to respond with tighter monetary policy. But if these are impacts that are going to last into, say, 2023, then we're looking at a a more persistent period of very high inflation. And if that's the case, it it does make sense for a central bank intervention. So this is a sort of difficult decision-making that Reserve Bank has to to deal with at the moment. You know, there there is a heightened amount of uncertainty that is going to have a a big role on how the, the economy and monetary policy evolves over the next year or two. And indeed, uh, with rising petrol prices, it's, it's very similar to rate hikes. I mean, it just means people spend less, and that affects demand, but it affects the economy. Yeah, absolutely. And when the 
prices of non-discretionary items go up, it, it, it is basically like a, a rate hike. It, it's very difficult for households to substitute away from those expenditures. So when petrol prices increase, what it largely means is that the consumption of other goods and services tends to decline. And that's ultimately not good for the, the economy. So one of the, the things that I think the Reserve Bank would be thinking about right now is the, the very real risk that this high inflation environment leads to a, a slowdown in economic activity. The economic response from an inflation event that is being driven by supply factors is very different than what we would see if inflation was being driven by higher wages. A supply-driven inflation shock typically leads to lower spending, low economic activity, so it's an overall negative for the economy, whereas an inflation event that is being driven by rising wages, uh, that tends to underpin stronger demand for, for goods and services. It's actually that stronger demand that is driving those, those prices higher. So it's a very different dynamic, and the Reserve Bank would obviously be well aware of sort of the, the risks that, that they face in increasing rates in that environment, because that is only going to increase the pressure on household budgets which are already being pushed pretty heavily by what we're seeing with increases in, in petrol prices and, and other commodities. Well, Callum, that's all very important. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, as prices of basic foodstuffs and fertilisers continue to surge, economists are increasingly concerned that Russia's invasion of Ukraine could spark a vicious wage price spiral that will force central banks into more aggressive interest rate rises. The conflict has plunged the global food market into disarray, as Russia and Ukraine are key exporters of foodstuffs such as wheat, corn, barley and sunflower oil. Over the past five years, the two countries together have accounted for nearly 30% of the exports of the world's wheat, 17% of corn, 32% of barley, a crucial source of animal feed, and 75% of sunflower seed oil, an important cooking oil in some parts of the world. Prices for key agricultural commodities have jumped sharply since the invasion as Russia has blockaded the Black Sea, cutting off Ukrainian crop exports, 85% of which are transported by sea. With ports closed, Ukraine has shifted to less efficient and more costly rail transport. Meanwhile, Russian food exports have been hit hard by Western sanctions that have cut the country off financially. Russia is hit back by halting exports of ammonium nitrate, a key fertiliser for which Russia accounts for two-thirds of the global market. The war in Ukraine has compounded the existing disruptions of global food markets, which have been caused by the coronavirus pandemic, shipping delays and rising freight costs, as well as droughts and floods in major food producers. The combination of these factors have pushed up wheat prices by 40% so far this year to fresh record highs, while corn prices have risen by more than 27%. There are also growing fears that this food inflation will persist, as the ongoing war in the Ukraine makes it unlikely that more than one-third of Ukraine's cropland will be planted this year, given the country's farmers face shortages of fuel, fertiliser and even labour as farm workers quit to join the Ukrainian Defence Forces or to leave the country. Because grain is used for animal feed, surging prices are also pushing up the price of meat and milk. Food inflation is also being stoked by the surging price of oil, which is crucial for food packaging and transportation. Even before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the global supply of milk was already under pressure, as bad weather in New Zealand, Australia and the United States had reduced output, while the surge in oil prices lifted transportation costs. Another longer-term shock to the food markets is the growing shortage and rising cost of fertiliser, where Russia is the world's largest fertiliser exporter, providing about 15% of global supply. And Russia's ally, Belarus, 
a leading producer of potash-based fertiliser, has also been hit with sanctions. And consumer confidence plunged 4.8% last week, according to ANZ Roy Morgan, falling to its lowest level since early September 2020, when Victoria was suffering its second wave of COVID-19. Weekly inflation expectations rose 0.4 percentage points to 6% as petrol prices continued to surge, taking the four-week moving average to 5.5%. Current financial conditions decreased by 5.4% and future financial conditions fell 4.6%. Both indices were at their lowest level since July and April 2020, respectively. Increasing petrol prices have had a sharp impact on households' confidence for both current and future financial conditions, with the two sub-indices dropping 10.3% and 8.4% respectively over the last two weeks. And Treasurer Josh Frydenberg on Monday released a new consultation paper on the cryptocurrency industry, seeking feedback on digital asset regulation, including input on a licensing and custody regimen and the classification of digital tokens to provide more certainty to crypto providers, consumers and regulators. More than 800,000 Australian taxpayers have used some form of cryptocurrency in the past three years, up 63% the last year alone, while some Australians have lost tens of thousands of dollars worth of crypto with the collapse of local unlicensed exchanges. And next week's federal budget will contain measures to deal directly with high petrol prices, either through a temporary reduction in the fuel excise or a freeze on its index increases. Prime Minister Scott Morrison all but confirmed on Tuesday that help was on the way regarding prices at the Bowser, not because of their direct impact on household budgets, but because also because of the flow-on costs to businesses. The fuel excise relief will be part of a cost-of-living package in the budget, which will also include modest one-off payments to low- and middle-income earners and possibly welfare recipients. It is understood the excise cut will be temporary. Three months will be too short and regarded cynically as something just to get the government past the election in May. On the other hand, 12 months will be too long in terms of lost revenue. In the run-up to the 2001 election, John Howard froze the indexation of the petrol excise, although it had no immediate impact on prices, which had just broken the $1 per litre barrier. It sent voters a message that the government was listening. And one-third of Australian companies expect to miss their 2050 net-zero carbon emissions, according to research released on Tuesday by Microsoft and the University of London. 686 Australian business leaders and thousands of employees took part in the survey, which found that despite a high number setting 2050 net-zero target, only 34% thought they would achieve it. The survey found a delivery deficit in 68% of the organisations, which is a gap between intent and the ability to execute. Speaking from Seattle, Microsoft's Chief Environmental Officer, Lucas Jopper, describes the number as worrying. Survey finds that Aussie companies were strong adopters of renewable energy and sustainable supply chains, but lagged in tech innovation, decarbonisation, funding, skills and natural capital accounting. In Australia, the world's largest exporter of alumina announced a ban on shipments to Russia in a move that will add further pressure on, on aluminium giant United Co. Rusal International PJSC. Australia accounts for nearly 20% of Russia's supply of alumina, the government said on Sunday. Alumina is a key ingredient in producing aluminium and is in turn produced from bauxite ore. Exports to Russia of alumina and aluminium ore, including bauxite, have been banned immediately. While aluminium has not been targeted by sanctions, Rusal which needs bauxite and alumina to feed its plants, is facing disruption to its supply chains as companies pull back from doing business with Russia. Rio Tinto Group planned to stop supplying bauxite to and buying alumina from a Russo plant in Ireland. In Australia, Rio operates the Queensland Alumina Limited joint venture with Russo, which holds a 20% stake. The London-based company said previously it was evaluating its options regarding the partnership with Russo and had the appropriate structures in place to ensure Queensland's alumina operations would not be disrupted.
And the strength of post-pandemic economic recovery will bring a $30 billion improvement to the budget bottom line this year. But whoever wins a federal election in May will face 15 years of deficit and need to find savings of $40 billion a year in the next few years. The surge in global commodity prices, including iron ore, coal and gas, will add about $45 billion in additional revenue, supporting an $87.6 billion improvement over the four-year forward estimates. The budget will still contain cumulative deficits of more than $250 billion and spending at a historically 26% of GDP, according to Deloitte budget economist Chris Richardson. And that is before likely new spending on defence, aged care and the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Mr Richardson said savings of $40 billion a year by 2026 could easily be achieved without weighing too much on economic growth, in part because it could offset the need for interest rate rises in the future. Analysis by PwC Australia Chief Economist Jeremy Thorpe puts the upcoming budget improvement at just $20 billion in 2021-22, but he forecasts cash deficits for at least another 15 years out to 2036-37. Russia's invasion of Ukraine, while driving up the cost of oil and hitting households with a petrol pump, has forced the price for key Australian exports, including coal and gas, higher, while iron ore is also elevated. The prices for thermal and metallurgical coal are more than 50% and 60% higher than previous records, while iron ore north of US $130, that's 175 Aussie a tonne, is well above the budget forecast of US $67.50. And scammers have become more sophisticated in duping an increasing number of Australians who lost more than $38 million last month after falling victim to fraudulent schemes ranging from investments to romance. The latest available figures from the Australian Competition Consumer Commission's Scamwatch site also showed it received more than 18,300 reports in February, with people racking up losses of $38,106,474. The most prevalent scam involves investments, through which more than $27,700,000 have been lost. Australians lost a total of $323 million in 2021. The Consumer Watchdog on Friday launched unprecedented legal action against Facebook owner Meta, for publishing scam cryptocurrency ads featuring well-known Australians including former New South Wales Premier Mike Baird, businessman Dick Smith, TV presenter David Koch and mining magnate Andrew Forrest. Describing the federal court action as world-leading, Australian Competition Consumer Commission Chairman Rod Sims said he expected the case alleging Facebook had engaged in false misleading or deceptive conduct by publishing scam advertisements. The ACCC said it knew of one consumer who lost more than $650,000 on a fake investment opportunity that was advertised on Facebook. Mr Sims said an increasing focus on celebrities and crypto scams has risen very quickly and is a major problem and must be dealt with by the platforms. There's also been an increase in finance scams more generally. And hotly contested federal electorates were showered with millions of dollars more than safe seats receiving from a controversial urban congestion fund analysis shows. And Victoria has been consistently short-changed when it comes to federal transport initiatives, which favoured Queensland and New South Wales, where federal elections tend to be won and lost. The analysis of pork barrelling promising public funds to particular seats for political gain by think tank the Grattan Institute shows the average marginal urban seat has received $83 million from the $4.9 billion urban congestion fund. The average safe coalition seat received $64 million, while safe Labor seats got $34 million. The analysis takes broader aim at transport promises at elections, with only one of 71 coalition major projects worth more than $100 million promised at the most recent federal poll, having a business case approved by the advisory body Infrastructure Australia. Labor was a little better, 
with just two business cases out of 61 mega projects promised, and its transport spending promises were worth more. And thousands of workers are set to have their pay rises jumped to 5% or more this year because of CPI-linked agreements that could shake up years of stagnant wage growth. About 30 blue-collar enterprise agreements approved in the past six months are underpinned by inflation guarantees, including for major logistics companies such as Global Express and Australia Post Star Trek, as well as employers in manufacturing, food, maintenance, construction materials and energy sectors. Most of the pay deals will automatically pass on the CPI rate recorded for this June quarter, which is forecast to spike at 5% or more due to rising commodity prices following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The expected pay surge contrasts to the flat wage growth in most private sector agreements for the past two years, with the latest data showing pay rises continue to stagnate at 2.7% as of the end of last year. CPI-linked pay rises, once popular in the 1980s, are still relatively uncommon, but they experienced a revival during the industry bargaining for the parcel delivery sector in the second half of last year. Transport Workers Union National Secretary Michael Kane said thousands of delivery drivers achieved CPI safety nets in their agreements after taking industrial action, including Toll, Linfox, FedEx, Global Express and Star Trek. While some CPI-linked pay rises are capped at a certain other amount, others are not. And the costs of replacing a damaged home in the flooded areas of southeast Queensland and northern New South Wales could rise at least 20% by the time work starts, as a shortage of skilled labour and materials escalates, experts say. The price tag could climb even higher, particularly for areas located further from the major centres, such as in northern New South Wales, warned Matthew Walker, CoreLogic's head of insurance solutions. Experts estimate the number of flood-affected homes had risen to 30,000 so far, and about 5,000 homes needed to be replaced. This is on top of the 22,241 homes built each year on average in southeast Queensland and northern New South Wales, according to the Housing Industry Association. And influencers have been warned that they must comply with financial services law or risk substantial penalties, and they should think carefully about their content. ASIC has issued an information sheet setting out expectations for social media influencers discussing financial products and services. A survey the regulator conducted last year found that 33% of 18 to 21-year-olds follow at least one financial influencer on social media, and 64% reported changing at least one of their financial behaviours as a result of following an influencer. The information sheet says information presented in a way that conveys a recommendation would be considered financial product advice, in which case the influencer would need an Australian Financial Services licence. A social media post saying something like, I'm going to share with you five long-term stocks that will do well and which you should buy and hold, would likely be considered financial product advice. Any misleading conduct would be a breach of the law. In this context, a misleading statement is one that cannot be substantiated. And Energy Minister Angus Taylor will accelerate its seven fossil fuel project despite the UN chief describing such a move as madness while naming and shaming our measly climate action. Taylor says skyrocketing gas prices in Europe, up 300% at the moment as Russia supplies about a third of its needs, prompted him to fast-track grants to the local gas projects in Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria, saying Europe was a warning for us. It's part of a $50 million funding boost for the industry. It comes as UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres slammed Australia at a London climate summit, saying a growing number of G20 developed economies have announced meaningful emissions reductions by 2030, with a handful of holdouts such as Australia. Ouch! The Climate Council said it's very unusual to see Guterres call out a country by name. The UN chief continued that it would be mutually assured destruction if countries turned to fossil fuels like coal or gas to patch up the gas caused by Russia's invasion. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Andy Thiss, Head of Anaplan ANZ. Anaplan is a planning software company used by leading ANZ enterprises across CPG, retail, finance and healthcare to help these companies better plan for the future. 
and I'll be talking to Rabobank economist Michael Ivory about the impact of the Russian invasion of Ukraine on the global economy. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 